Praise the Lord. This is Andrew Womack, and today I'm going to begin a series talking about a subject that has transformed my life, and that subject is the topic of righteousness. And you know the term righteousness has lost its meaning to a lot of people today. It's a cliche. It's a religious cliche that really doesn't impact their daily life. But what the word righteousness means, according to the Strong's Concordance, it just means equity of character or act. And what that's saying is that it's talking about a purity, a wholeness, either in uh, character, that's talking about your very nature, the way that you've been born again, or in your actions. Sometimes you have to use the context of a statement to be able to understand it. But in layman's terms, what this means is, the way I interpret it often is, that righteousness is just talking about right standing with God, being right with God. And, you know, this is what turned my life around. I was raised in a Christian home. I got born again when I was eight years old, and I was taught the gospel, and so I really did make a real commitment of my life to the Lord at the age of eight. And I was made fun of in the third grade for being a Christian. I mean, there was a change in my life. Even though I hadn't lived a very sinful life, there was a noticeable change in my life that caused my friends to ask me the day after I made that decision what happened to me. So the point I'm making is I had a genuine conversion, and I started seeking the Lord. But, you know, the problem was that I fell into a trap that I believe most Christians are in today. And that is that even though I got born again by trusting Jesus and putting my faith in him, I fell into the deception of thinking that God was going to accept me after my salvation. You know, on a day-to-day basis, as far as his relationship, his pleasure with me, I felt that God's pleasure for me was proportional to my actions. And so I got to looking at the things that I did, and I believe that God loved me according to how well I lived. And, you know, as a young kid, I actually was under the deception of thinking that I could live good. And, I mean, I lived holier than most people have. I've never used a word of profanity in all my life. I've never taken a drink of liquor in all of my life. I've never smoked a cigarette in all of my life. And I've never even tasted coffee in all of my life. And I know that when I say that in my meetings, sometimes you hear this gasp. People say, coffee? What are you saying? Coffee and booze are the same thing? No, I'm just saying that, man, I was living a holy life. There's actually a scripture that you can stand on for drinking coffee. Out of Mark chapter 16, verse 18, it says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. But the point I'm making is, man, I was living a holy life. And I really was trying to do everything that was told me. I remember going to the pastor and asking him, well, if I sin every day, what is it? And he listed off drinking, cussing, smoking, dipping, chewing, going with those who do and I didn't do any of those kind of things. And yet he was still telling me I sinned. So I said, well, I need to know what it is. And finally, I remember he used Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not a faith is sin. And I used that uh, growing up, that basically anything that I didn't just feel pleased God, if there was any reservation, if there was a question about it, I just didn't do it. And I mean, there's a lot of things I didn't do that I probably could have well done, but, you know, my conscience... Basically, I just let my conscience be my guide. And the point I'm making through all this, I'm not trying to promote or maintain my holiness, but I'm saying that I really gave it a run for the money. I did everything I was told, and yet I had no confidence that I was in right standing with God. Now, I didn't use the term righteousness necessarily when I was young, but I didn't feel that God was pleased with me. I didn't feel that I was righteous with God. 
And, you know, most people don't feel that way either. And if I had time, I'm, I really want to get into these scriptures. I'm headed that direction. But I was using this as testimony to get into it to show that if I had time, I could just show you that every problem we have, insecurity, fear, worry, all of those kind of things actually are a byproduct of not knowing that you are in right standing with God. For instance, the subject of depression. Did you know that if you really understood how much God loved you and how right and how holy you are and how God was pleased with you, it would be impossible to be depressed. And I know that there's some people listening to me think, oh, no, my depression has nothing to do with my relationship with God. But you don't understand. I've got this sickness and the doctor told me I'm going to die. Well, again, if you really understood your right standing with God, how much God loves you, what God has prepared for you. Well, then you'd either be one of two things. You'd either get healed because you had your mind so stayed upon God. And the scripture talks about that that's health unto you. Or if you went ahead and died, man, you'd be right in the presence of God. And instead of being depressed and discouraged, you could actually get to rejoicing when they tell you that you're going to die. Again, I know that some people think that that's extreme. But if you followed it out and if you really understood your right standing with God, you'd find out that depression Fear of death, worry about what people think about you, wouldn't matter. Who cares what somebody else thinks about you if God Almighty likes you? I mean, if God Almighty is pleased with you, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, loves you, then who gives a rip about Mr. or Mrs. Nobody that rejects you? And so this is what I experienced. I tried to live holy, and then I had a miraculous encounter where God just showed me that he had forgiven me and cleansed me. It changed my life around, and yet it took me a long time for my head to catch up with what I experienced. Let me start by saying that there are 520 verses in the Bible that use the word righteousness or righteous. And there's actually 540 times those words are used in those 520 verses. Now, just contrast this with the word faith, faithfulness, faithful, you know, we, we talk about faith. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And yet faith, all of these words concerning faith are only used 348 times. Actually, faith is how we appropriate righteousness. And if you would really look at the word faith and the way that it's used, especially in the New Testament, in the Pauline epistles, the real significance of faith is what it obtains. Faith in itself isn't the object, but right standing with God. Having righteousness with God is what the whole Bible is written about. And faith is just the way that we make that righteousness ours. So faith, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on faith. Most of you would fight and say, yes, it's important to understand faith. And yet faith is only important because it's the way that we obtain righteousness. So really, righteousness is the object. What we're talking about here is something that is is vital. And I mean, we need to have a clear understanding about righteousness. Let's look over in Romans chapter 9, and let me start there. <clears throat> we'll be coming back to other verses in Romans. But in Romans chapter 9, in verse 30, it says, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles, and the word Gentile here is talking about a non-Jew, is literally what the word meant, but it became, uh, it began to be used referring to a non-godly uh, person didn't matter what race they were of, just a person that wasn't seeking God. I think the way we would talk about this today is to say the ungodly or the non-religious or the people who weren't even seeking God is what it's talking about. 
The Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have obtained to righteousness even the righteousness which is of faith. Now, before I go on, let me just say that this is a radical statement. You know, he was talking to religious Jews who put tremendous emphasis on being in right standing with God, and they were seeking righteousness. You'll find in these verses as we read through them that he's he's not impugning the Jewish nation for their seeking of God, but rather he's talking about that they were doing it all wrong. They had the wrong understanding. These people were zealous. Man, they wanted to be in right standing with God. They prayed three times a day, blew a trumpet on the street in front of them to draw people's attention. They paid tithes of mint and anise and cumin and on and on and on it went. I mean, these people were very zealous, very religious, and yet he's telling them that these people who weren't even seeking righteous have become more righteous in the sight of God than the religious people. You know, this just really rubbed the Jews the wrong way, and it really rubs people wrong today, too, to say that sometimes that the harlots, the prostitutes, the uh, sinners out there are actually more accepted to God than the religious folks. Uh, That's basically what he's saying right here. In verse 31, he says, But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not obtained to the law of righteousness. Why is this so? Why is it that somebody who wasn't even seeking after God but could become more acceptable to God than a person who was doing all these religious acts? Verse 32 says, Because they sought it not by faith, but as it was by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So what he's saying is that there's two types of righteousness. There's a righteousness that is produced by your own effort, your own works, and that's what religious people are after. Religious people, basically, here is the concept that religion teaches today. Religion teaches that if you are living right, and doing right and keeping all of these rules and regulations, then God will accept you based on your performance. And that's what Paul here is equating to the nation of Israel, the way they thought. And he said that because that's the way they were trying to obtain right standing with God was through their own actions, their own good works. Therefore, they had fallen short. And yet the people who weren't seeking to please God by their actions had obtained unto the righteousness, the true righteousness of God, because they sought it by faith. In other words, they just received righteousness as a gift. They didn't work for it. Going down in chapter 10, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And here's a pivotal scripture, verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Boy, that is a powerful passage of Scripture. And that shows you that there is a God's righteousness. There is a righteousness of God, a righteousness that comes from God. And if you're ignorant of a righteousness that comes from God, then it, that is just a gift that is given unto you, then you will try and establish your own righteousness or self-righteousness And if you're doing that, you cannot submit yourselves unto the righteousness of God. In other words, you cannot be trusting in your self-righteousness, a righteousness that you produce by your own works, your own actions, and trusting in the righteousness of God that comes as a free gift. You can't be doing both of those at the same time. It's either one or the other. 
a scripture, if you're here in Romans chapter uh, 10, just one more chapter over, Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says, and if by grace, he's talking about, again, this same righteousness, if it comes by grace, then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, that's just old English for saying that it's one or the other. It's not a combination of the two. You're either justified, saved by grace, without works. Otherwise, it's not pure grace. It's not true grace if you mix works with it. Or you're either saved by what you do, by your own effort, without the grace of God. Otherwise, it's not true works if you mix it half and half. Religion today has to acknowledge that, yes, it takes the grace of God. Nobody's good enough to save themselves, but they've polluted it. And this is what Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 1. He says that it's not a total distruth that people are, are saying, but it's a perversion of the gospel. He says they have perverted it, saying, well, yes, you need the grace of God, but you also have to live holy on your own. It's a combination of the two. Well, right here he's saying, no, that's not so. And in Galatians chapter 1, he says that if anybody, even an angel, preaches another gospel unto you, perverts what I've said, then let him be accursed. And then he repeats it. That's such a strong statement. He said it again, that if any man preaches any other gospel unto you than that which I have preached, let him be accursed. So we find here in these passages of Scripture that there's actually two types of righteousness. One is a righteous nature that actually comes as a gift from God. As a matter of fact, if you just kept reading on in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, this is an awesome statement, and I hadn't got time to really teach on this, but you know what? Most people really believe that we still have to keep the law today to be in right standing with God, for God to be pleased with us. In other words, you could say that most people believe that righteousness still is dependent upon us keeping the law. And this scripture says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Well, that flies in the face of what most people really believe today. Verse 5, for Moses described the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. In other words, what he's saying is that if you're trying to be in right standing with God through your own performance, through the things that you do, then you have to keep all of those precepts of the law. And this is a point that most people miss. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 makes this point very clearly, that it's not just keeping parts of it, but you have to keep all of the law. Let me just read that passage to you out of Galatians chapter 3. And in verse 10, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. See, some people who preach that, yes, you've got to keep the law and you've got to do certain things before you could be in right standing with God. They very seldom, I've never heard anybody say that you have to be perfect. They just say that you have to live as holy as you can, and if you fall short, you have to ask God to forgive you. But that's not what the law says. The law says you have to keep all of the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. That's, the law didn't teach that you do the best you can, and, and it's like a test in school that if you make 70 or above, then you pass. And if you make below that, then you're rejected by God. No, the Scripture teaches that you have to do them all. 
In James chapter 2, verse 10, it says that whosoever keeps the whole law and yet offend in one point becomes guilty of everything. Boy, what a radical statement. It says that if you keep the whole law and yet become guilty in one point, you've broken all of the law. See, the law more accurately is described like a huge glass window. And it wouldn't matter if you threw a BB through, a shot of BB through the window or if you ran a truck through the window. If you break it, the entire thing is broken and it has to be replaced. That's what God's law is. God's law is so strict that nobody, nobody, nobody can ever keep the law. Let me show you a passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this one is often quoted by people and used to promote uh, a self-righteousness, living free and holy of sin so that you can be accepted with God. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1 says, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. And then in verse, all the way down through verse 14, it lists the blessings that will come upon you for keeping the law. Then in verses 15 through 68, it lists all of the curses that come upon you if you don't keep the law. And you know what? I've heard people take this and say, well, boy, that's what you got to do. You got to hearken diligently and you got to serve the Lord and do as much as you can. If you've been praying 30 minutes a day, pray an hour a day. If you read the Bible, you know, for one hour a day, read it two hours a day. You got to be holy and do this. But go back and just look closely at what these verses say. It says, you shall hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments. All. A-L-L. You know what that means in the Greek? It means all. Amen. It means that you can't miss one of them. In other words, the law, nobody could ever keep it. The only person who ever kept the law was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was righteous by nature because he was God, but then he came down and became righteous in action also and earned the righteousness that came by the law. And according to Romans chapter 8, verse 4, now the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Through Jesus, we have had him just give us right standing, righteousness, equity of character and act with God, not through what we've done, but through a gift from God. And that's what this is saying. See, the people who preach that you become in right standing with God by what you do, those people do not really promote that you have to be perfect, but rather do the best you can, and if you miss it, uh, it's okay. But that's not what the law says. i tell you, it's amazing how religion has taken the condemnation and the guilt that came through the law, and yet uh, they've just kind of pushed that aside, told us we have to still abide by the law. We still are under the curses if we don't do it. And yet they missed this point that the law demands perfection, complete obedience to it. You know, Paul was an ex excellent example of this, that Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Look over in Philippians chapter 3 at what Paul said about himself. He said in verse 4, this is Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. 
In other words, what he's talking about here is about righteousness, obtaining right standing with God. And he says if anybody could boast that they've done a good job and that God owed them forgiveness and right standing with God because of their actions, then it would be me. And he starts listing all of his accomplishments. In verse 5, he says, circumcise the eighth day, which was kind of like the dominant uh, thing that the legalistic Jews of Paul's day promoted, that you had to have circumcision. You know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just say this, that the covenant of circumcision that God gave Abraham, if you would stop and think about this, uh, you know, it was a personal thing. I mean, why didn't he have them uh, cut off one of their thumbs? Or why didn't he have them make a mark in their flesh or put a mark in their forehead or something that, you know, would be obvious so that everybody could see? One of the reasons that he gave the covenant of circumcision is because it's not supposed to be something that you go around bragging and telling everybody and showing everybody you're circumcised. It was meant to be a private thing. It was something that was personal between them, and yet religion takes it and makes it a major thing and talks about it. You know, it's just amazing how perverted religion can make everything. Circumcision was something that was commanded under the Old Testament law, but, you know, and if you go into the book of Galatians, you'll also find out that Paul talked about that the Judaizers came down and snuck in privately to spy us out our liberty and see if people were circumcised. How is it that you spy out whether a person's circumcised or not? You know what this means? This is out of Galatians chapter 2. They were hiding in the, the latrines. Amen. They were looking under the stalls. They were watching guys go to the bathroom to see if they were circumcised. That's what religion will do to you. Religion will make these people who thought they were so holy and they were down there to spy on all of the unholy people, they were peeping toms in the name of the Lord. I tell you, religion can pervert people more than anything else. When I'm using the term religion, I'm not using it in the true sense of the word. You know, there's only a couple of times in the Bible that religion is used in a positive sense. It says in James chapter 1, pure religion, and it even has to qualify it then. And undefiled before God and the Father is this, that you visit the widows and fatherless in their affliction. And so uh, many times in the Bible, religion is used to describe man's attempt to understand and relate to God, and it's man's doctrine. It's not true. Christianity, in the truest sense of the world, is not a religion because it didn't originate from man. It's not man reaching out to God, but true Christianity is God coming down to us. He provided everything for us, and we just receive it by faith. So there's a huge difference here. I'm not using religion in a favorable term. So Paul said he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, which meant he was a Jew, of the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the most famous and, and well-respected tribes in the Jewish nation. A Hebrew of the Hebrews meant that, man, he was a Jew of the Jews. This is talking about uh, today a person would say, well, man, I'm Methodist to the core, or I'm Baptist to the core, or I was raised a Catholic and I'll die a Catholic. In other words, he was saying, man, he was... Uh, locked into this, he had bought into the Jewish mentality hook, line, and sinker. As touching the law, he was a Pharisee, which we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but the Pharisees in Jesus' day were people that were super holy. I mean, they uh, dressed holy. They had all of these rituals concerning washings and things. Their whole life was consumed with religious observance. 
They put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the external, and yet Jesus came along in Matthew 5.20, and he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know, if you really stop and thought about that, that is an awesome passage of scripture. And I can promise you that whoever you are, if you're breathing today, your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, I need to qualify that. Your self-righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Your actions, you aren't living as holy as they lived. You are not fulfilling the law as well as they fulfilled it. And some of you may think, oh, you don't know me. Well, you probably don't know the Pharisees. I mean, they lived a pure, separated life. And yet Jesus said you had to have something more than that. Now, that isn't saying that you have to go out and try even harder and you have to wear all of their garments and go through their rituals. But the point I'm making is that the righteousness that comes by faith that we started out reading about in Romans chapter 9, that righteousness is better than self-righteousness. The righteousness that you receive as a gift when you just make Jesus your Lord, that righteousness makes you, it, it gives you God's righteousness. It's actually his power. You know, I'm here in Philippians chapter 3, but let me just turn back real quickly. I'm going to come right back to Philippians 3, but let me turn back to Romans chapter 10, and in verse 6 it says, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? What he's doing, he's talking about how is it that you obtain right standing with God? What does true righteousness think? How does it feel? He's saying it it doesn't say who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. You know what this is talking about, who shall ascend into heaven? That's talking about how holy do you have to be? Do you have to be so holy that, man, you could ascend unto heaven through your own effort? Well, no, because, see, Jesus came down to earth for us. You don't have to work your way to heaven. Jesus came down to earth, and he He lived holy for you. Or the next thing is, who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. See, some people believe they have to live so holy that basically they can enter into heaven on their own goodness, and that's denying what Jesus did for us. But then other people believe that you have to beat yourself and hate yourself and just, uh, you know, put yourself through terrible repentance and all of these things. There are some groups that I've actually talked to a man one time that in South America, he uh, was crucified on a cross during the Lent season and went through that. He actually crawled three miles over broken glass and he took his uh, shirt Uh, sleeves, rolled them up and showed me the scars on his uh, elbows and on his forearms and on his knees where he had crawled over broken glass and bled to do penance. See, there's some people that believe you have to do these kind of things to atone for your sins, but that's denying that Christ has already atoned for your sins. He died for you. He literally went to hell. He suffered the judgment of God, and he has paid for your sins. So true righteousness doesn't say that you have to live holy enough that you can ascend into heaven. Christ already did that for you. It doesn't say that you have to do penance and beat yourself and hate yourself. Christ has already borne your sin for you. But what does it say? In verse 8 it says, The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, 
thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. The way you obtain right standing with God, the Bible right standing with God, is not through your acts of righteousness, through the things that you do, but you believe for it. You confess Jesus as your Lord. You receive his salvation and you believe unto salvation is what this is saying. Praise God. Boy, that is so powerful. Back in Philippians chapter 3, here's what Paul is saying. He says in verse 6, concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. Now, from the Jewish perspective, I mean, this was a very noble thing to do. They looked at Jesus as being an offshoot of uh, Judaism that was going to pervert it and turn people away from keeping the law and and this self-righteousness that comes through adherence to the law. So he persecuted the church mercilessly. You can read about that in the book of Acts, chapter 7, 8, and 9. And Paul was the one that hailed people in and put them into prison and even put some people to death. I mean, he was zealous persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law. Notice he qualifies this. He wasn't saying he was righteous, but he says, according to the righteousness which came by the law, the righteousness that was taught by the religious leaders, living holy and adhering to standards, he said he was blameless. He didn't say he was sinless, but he was blameless. In other words, he did it as much as humanly possible. And any mistakes or any failures adhering to it was just because he was a person, not because he didn't try. He had every bit of effort and zeal that it took to keep the law. He just uh, he failed to do things perfectly, but he certainly was blameless, blameless in it. In verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. You know, lots of times we take this passage of Scripture and we talk about how we have to count all of our past hurts and pains and failures and things like this. <clears throat> we just need to put them behind us and go on. And that's the truth. But Paul wasn't talking about failures. He wasn't talking about bad things. He was talking about all of his accomplishments. He was talking about all of his degrees. You know, in a sense, Paul had been through school. He went through the school of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, and Paul was the most educated person of his day. He would have had a doctorate in everything that there was to have a doctorate in. And Paul was saying that all of his doctrinal degrees, all of his diplomas, he counted them but dung for the sake of the Lord. In other words, he wasn't just counting all of his failures, turning from them, but he was turning from all of his great accomplishments. In the next verse, yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ. You know, it's amazing here. Most people don't really think on this, but Paul chose a very descriptive word here when he says he counts all of his accomplishments like dung. You know what dung is? Uh, I hope I don't have to go into a lot of detail on this, but you need to think about this. I mean, you don't carry dung around with you. You don't carry excrement around with you and put it on your wall and frame it and brag about it and talk about it and, and show everybody this kind of stuff. Man, you get it away from you. You burn it. You flush it. Well, Paul, that's what he was talking about. That's the worth that he put on all of his great accomplishments. Did you know that there's a lot of people that don't look at themselves that way today? They say that, well, I'm really a good person and I only need a little help from Jesus. I only needed a little bit. I'm not like this old publican over here. See, that's what 
happened uh, in a parable that Jesus taught about the Pharisee and the publican that went to pray. And the Pharisee, he stood up and shouted loud and was proud, said, I thank you, Father, I'm not like other men. I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin. I do all of these kind of things. I thank you I'm not like this old publican over here, which a publican in that day was a tax collector and a thief. And he says, I thank you I'm not like them. But the old publican over there, the tax collector, he bowed himself. He couldn't even look up. He knew he was so unworthy. And he beat upon his breast and said, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus said that the publican is the one that God accepted and the one that God counted righteous, not the Pharisee. The Pharisee was living a holier life, but see, he was trusting in his holiness. And the truth is, it doesn't matter how holy you live, you are going to fall short of God's standard of holiness. See, this is where I I was. I was living a super holy life, but I had come under the deception of thinking that God was going to love me, accept me, and relate to me based on how well I lived. And even though I was living better than most, I still wasn't enjoying the presence and the blessings of God because my faith was in me, and I never was good enough. I mean, I tried harder than most, and I never was good enough. And see, the publican... He just smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the kind of person that God just gives righteousness to. A righteousness which is not of the law, but a righteousness which is of God. The righteousness of God that Romans chapter 10 talked about. And this is what Paul is saying. He recognized that there was a right standing with God that came not based on performance, but it came as a gift from God. And he recognized that that righteousness was greater in quantity and quality than he could ever produce on his own. And I mean, Paul was a very righteous person. Concerning the righteousness which was in the law, he was blameless. But he recognized his righteousness was infinitely short of what God offered. And so he counted everything he had done, all of his great works, his holiness, his goodness. He just totally renounced all that and turned from it, and he put faith in the Lord. He counted everything that he had done as dung compared to what Christ had done. And in the verse, uh, next verse, it says, verse 9, and be, he wanted to be found in him, in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He forgot everything that he had done. He quit putting faith in himself. He quit trusting in his own goodness as the basis of God loving him. And he wanted to be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness, a self-righteousness, which is of the law, based on his adherence to rules and regulations, but a righteousness which is through the faith of Christ. Notice it didn't say faith in Christ, but this is literally the faith of God. It's the faith of God that makes us righteous. You know, there's a a parallel passage of Scripture to this in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul said in verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not faith in the Son of God, but I'm living by the faith of the Son of God. Most people Don't understand that we aren't trying to live for God, but true Christianity is God living through us. It's not us trying to live better than we did before we made Jesus our Lord, 
But when we make Jesus our Lord, the true Christian life is learning how to get out of our way and quit trusting in ourselves and quit trying to love people. You know, just white knuckle it and say, in the name of Jesus, I will love you, and you just have willpower. No, that's not true Christianity. But true Christianity is saying, God, I recognize that I can't, I can't love this person. It's beyond my human ability to turn the other cheek when this person has hit me. When they spit in my face, it's beyond human ability to just walk, wipe it off and continue to walk in love with them. And so what you do is say, God, I can't do it. I call on you. And you humble yourself and you ask God for help. And man, he just supernaturally, he gives you supernatural ability to live the Christian life. The Christian life isn't hard to live. It's impossible to live. It is humanly impossible to measure up to all of the standards of Christianity. And the only way that we can ever be successful is to quit living it out of human ability, human righteousness, self-righteousness. And we have to just let God literally live through us. So he's saying, the life that I'm now living, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, this is Galatians 2:21. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Man, what a powerful passage of Scripture. If righteousness comes through the law, if righteousness comes by me keeping some standard, and if I do well at it, then God counts me righteous. If that's the way that it comes, then Christ is dead in vain. Did you know you can actually void the work of Christ in your life if you are trusting in your own self-righteousness as the basis of God loving you? The reason that Christ came and died for you is so that you wouldn't have to live up to some standard. You wouldn't have to be holy. Instead, you just receive it as a gift. Now, I know somebody's thinking, man, well, you're advocating then that you can just live like the devil and still be righteous. No, if you'll listen to the entire tape series, I'll eventually come back and show you why it's important for you to live righteous. But it's not important for you to act right in order to be right in the sight of God. The only thing you have to do is believe right, not act right. If you believe right, then God will make you righteous. And if you are trusting in what you do, and if that's where your faith is, is in looking at yourself, then you just basically make the death of Christ in vain for you. It has no impact on you. I know some of you are thinking, brother, that's not so. How could you say such a thing? Well, look over here in Galatians chapter 5. Same book Paul is writing, and he says in verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. If I had time to put it into context, this yoke of bondage is talking about the law. The law is a yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, we just read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, that Paul was circumcised. So he's not saying that you can't be circumcised. The, the application of this today is he's not saying that you shouldn't do right things. See, Paul himself was circumcised, but he wasn't trusting in the fact that he was circumcision. That wasn't where his faith was. Yes, we should do right things today, but you can't trust in your observance of doing right, holy things as being the thing that makes you righteous with God. And if you do trust in your own righteousness, then Christ shall profit you nothing, is what this says. 
Man, that's exactly where a lot of people are today. And let me also make this point, that you can be born again by putting faith in Jesus for your initial born-again salvation. And when it comes to your eternal salvation, people trust that that is totally by the righteousness of God. Then when it comes to the daily relationship with the Lord, maintenance of our relationship with God over a prolonged period of time, we fall back into thinking that God once again loves us based on our performance. You couldn't have gotten saved that way, and you can't continue to relate to the Lord that way. As a matter of fact, look right here in Galatians once again, chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul said, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? This word foolish in the Greek literally means you stupid Galatians. That's what Paul said. I mean, it's stupid to think this way. And then when it says, who hath bewitched you? This is talking about demonic deception. He says that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, the way that they received the Spirit wasn't through something that they did. It just came. Uh, Paul preached the gospel unto them. They believed it, and he knew that's how they received it. So he asked him this question. The answer is, well, they received it by hearing of faith, not through living holy. And then in verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? In other words, if the way you got saved was by putting faith in a Savior, you didn't have any righteous acts to offer God. I mean, when most people get born again, you hadn't been fasting, praying, studying the word, living holy, and yet you called on Jesus to save you, and you received the greatest miracle that you'll ever receive, which is salvation. And then we get so foolish that we started off totally dependent upon God, singing just as I am, but now that's not enough. We have to live holy, and unless we're reading our Bible, and unless we're going to church and paying our tithes, and praying an hour a day, and doing this and doing that, God won't answer our prayers. That's not what the Scripture says. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. That means the same way you got born again is the same way that you're supposed to continue to relate to the Lord. And you do it not based on what you do. When you came to the Lord, you didn't offer your holiness to God and say, God, look how holy I've been. No, you looked to Jesus and said, look what Jesus did. I receive it. I believe I'm saved through him. That's the way you're supposed to still be relating to the Lord. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect in the flesh? Well, I tell you, that's descriptive of a lot of people today, and that is not the way that God intended it to be. So let's go back to Galatians chapter 5. In verse 2, he says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. This is the same point that I made over there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Cursed is he that continueth not in all things that are written in the law to do them. If you are going to trust to be justified, and the word justified, here's a little layman's definition. It means just as if I'd never sinned, justified. And if you are going to be just as if you'd never sinned, then you have to do it through faith and not through performance. Nobody, based on their performance, will ever be good enough to have God say, all right, I owe you salvation. You earned it. No, we all have to come as the publican and just say, God, be merciful. 
to me a sinner. And that's not only when you get born again, but every day of your born again life, you still have to trust in the mercy of God. In verse four, it says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now, he's talking to Christians here. This is not talking about that they've lost their salvation. That's not what this is talking about. It just means that they are no longer living under the grace of God. They aren't having God's ability available to them on an unearned, undeserved basis. But instead, they're getting only what they deserve. Man, you don't want what you deserve. You may think you do, but you don't. Amen. I used to develop pictures in a photography studio And we'd have these people come in, usually as women, and they'd say something like, oh, this picture doesn't do me justice. And, you know, I never had the nerve to say it, but I thought it a lot. I always wanted to say, lady, you don't need justice. You need mercy. Amen. And you know what? That's the way it is with us. Some people say, well, I'm believing that God's going to move in my life because I've fasted, because I've prayed, and because you've done these things. But the truth is, you don't want what you deserve. I mean, the best of us, at your very best, on your very best day, you are infinitely lower than God's standard of perfection. And God says you either have to get what you deserve or you have to humble yourself and receive it as a free gift. Look over here in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. It says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, It saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Do you know the purpose of the law wasn't so that you could keep all of the commandments and if you would keep them well enough, God would accept you and you would have become righteous. The law was not given for righteousness. Remember Romans 10, 4, it says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law wasn't given so that you could obtain righteousness, but rather the law was given to show you how incapable of being in right standing with God you were through your own actions, and it was to make you turn from self-righteousness and receive faith righteousness, of righteousness that comes by faith instead of by works. God basically saw that man was trusting in himself and in his own goodness and becoming self-righteous, putting all of the emphasis on, I've got to be good enough. And he wasn't just accepting the goodness of God that made him in right standing with God. And so God said, I've got to take away this deception. And the way he did it was to give the commandments, not only 10 commandments, but he gave hundreds of commandments that nobody could ever keep. You know, in the 10th chapter of the book of Mark, there was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus and he says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, see, Jesus didn't come teaching you to do certain laws and commandments. That was not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus was to take in the woman, taken in the very act of adultery, and just pronounce her free and extend mercy and forgiveness to her. All she had to do was humble herself and receive it. Jesus offered people right standing with God, not through holy living, but rather through just humbling themselves and receiving it as a gift. So Jesus didn't preach, you must do this, this, and this. That was the message of the religion of Jesus' day. And so this rich young ruler, he came asking Jesus for something that Jesus wasn't telling other people. But see, this man wanted to know what he had to do. So Jesus used the law the way that it was intended to be used for him. He says, you know the law, thou shalt not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not commit a murder, and you shall not do all of these things. And this religious Rich young ruler 
like so many people today, was under the deception that he could actually do all of the law and keep all of the law. And he says, all of these things have I kept since my youth up. And Jesus, it says in Mark chapter 10, I forget the exact verse, but it says Jesus beholding him loved him. And then he told him, he says, go sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the man went away grieving because he had great riches and he didn't do what Jesus told him to do. The scripture says that Jesus told him this because he loved him. Jesus didn't tell him this to get rid of him, to be hard on him. You know what he was doing? This man was under the deception of thinking that he actually was good enough, so therefore God had to accept him. Well, that would send him to hell. That kind of attitude would keep him out of heaven because he had never humbled himself and received faith righteousness, a righteousness that comes by faith. He was trying to maintain self-righteousness. The Lord needed to bring him out of that deception. So what did he do? He told him to go sell whatever he had. You know, Jesus didn't tell every rich man that. Zacchaeus was also a rich man. He was a publican, a tax collector, and he had stole most of his money. Jesus went and ate in his home, and he didn't mention one thing to Zacchaeus about selling everything he had. He didn't have to because Zacchaeus knew he was a sinner. He humbled himself. He wasn't proclaiming and trusting his own righteousness. And so he just humbled himself and received the salvation and willfully started giving things away. So Jesus didn't tell every rich man to sell his money, but he told this rich young ruler to do it. You know why? Because this rich young ruler thought he had kept all of the commandments. You know what the first commandment in the Bible in Exodus chapter 20 is? The very first of the Ten Commandments, it says that you shall have no other gods before me. That was the very first commandment. And by Jesus telling this rich young ruler to go sell everything that he had, you know what he was doing? He was showing him that he had broken the first commandment, that this rich young ruler's money was his God. Jesus was showing him that he broke the very first commandment. And, you know, when Jesus came along in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gave a lot of the Old Testament commandments. And he says, you've heard that in the law it says that you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you even look on a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Was Jesus changing the commandment? No, he was just showing that the commandment actually was even more severe than what people had thought. It's not just a matter of keeping your zipper up and not uh, violating things with other people. It's in your heart. You can't even think that. And if you've thought it, you actually are guilty of it in your heart. Jesus said that some people have said you shall not murder. But I say unto you that if you hate your brother without being provoked, you've already committed murder in your heart. So see, Jesus, if you look at things from the Lord's standpoint, nobody, nobody but nobody that's ever breathed on the face of the earth has ever been able to keep all of these commandments and laws. Why did God give such strict laws? It's not because he hates you. It's because he wanted to give righteousness, right standing with him as a gift. And people were wrong and making the mistake of thinking that they could earn it And so he had to remove this deception, and so he just gave the law for what purpose? Well, this verse, Romans 3.19, says, So that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. In verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. Man, if you can read... 
if you can listen and hear, if you believe what I'm saying, this ought to forever end trying to earn God's favor by performance. It says the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament law isn't against what I'm saying. It wasn't that under the Old Testament, God gave righteousness by keeping the law. And under the New Testament, he gives a faith righteousness that comes as a gift. No, the Old Testament law never was for the purpose of making you righteous. It was just to show you your need. And even the Old Testament law prophesied and told about the coming Messiah. Every sacrifice of an Old Testament animal was a picture and a type of a Messiah coming who would bear our sins. When the priests sacrificed those animals, they would lay their hands on the head of the animal, and then they would lean on the animal and confess the sins of the people. That was symbolic of our sins that were being confessed out of their mouth actually coming upon that animal, and then the animal was killed to suffer the judgment that rightfully belonged to us. And that's exactly what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says. It says, for he made him, talking about God the Father, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God put our sin upon Jesus, and Jesus bore our sins so that we could receive his righteousness. We didn't receive just a little bit of it. We have been made the righteousness of God. So see, the Old Testament law even prophesied all of this. In verse 21, it says, Now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Man, that is awesome. It's not just human righteousness. It's the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now we take verse 23 out of context often and say that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we use that to prove universal guilt. And that's a true statement. But you know, the point that is really being made is verse 24. So let me read verse 23 and 24 together. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's basically saying since all are guilty and nobody can stand before God based on your own goodness, then you don't have to worry about performing and earning the favor of God because in the same way as all are guilty, all have also become justified through Christ Jesus. If you will receive it, Everyone can be justified through the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 25, it says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, that means an atoning sacrifice, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Boy, that's powerful. God declares God Jesus' righteousness to our account. There's no way that you could ever match the righteousness, the holiness, the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who think that, man, you got to be right in your actions for God to love you, you may be better than I am, but who wants to be the best sinner that ever got sent to hell? The truth is, all of us have sinned and come short, and the only thing that's ever going to make you in right standing with God is not a self-righteousness based on action, but it's going to have to be the righteousness of Jesus. 
It says that he he declares his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through forbearance. And then he repeats it in the next verse to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Man, that is so awesome. God makes us righteous, not through what we do, but when we put faith in Jesus, we literally receive the righteousness of God. We get Jesus' righteousness put to our account. I am as holy, as righteous, and as pure as Jesus is. And I know some of you may choke on that and think, how can you say that? Because you're looking on my physical body. You look on the external. But the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And in my heart, I have a new nature. I am born again. And Jesus' righteousness has been imputed unto me. It's placed on the inside. And I'm righteous in the sight of God, not because I act righteous, but because I am righteous. I am a human being, not a human doing. What I mean by that is I am righteous. That's my nature. And my actions flow out of that. But most people think that we are human doings. It's all what we do that make us who we are. No, that's not so. You have a nature. When you get born again, God gives you a righteous nature. And then holiness is a fruit and not a root of salvation. Holiness is a byproduct of relationship with the Lord, not a way to relationship with the Lord. Verse 27, Romans 3:27. where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Again, if you can read, I don't know how anybody could persist in thinking that you have to be holy for God to love you. Because this says that you are justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Well, what a strong statement. You know, if a person is proud and going around and saying, look what I've done and boasting of their accomplishments, then that's a person that doesn't understand faith righteousness. It's a person that still thinks that God accepts them and makes them right with him based on their actions instead of based on the mercy and the grace of God. And I tell you, you just will never be justified in the sight of God through anything that you've done. Now, this uh, is offensive to religious people who've lived a holy life. You know, the ungodly love this. This is what we started out with in Romans chapter 9. It says that the Gentiles who knew not God and didn't seek after righteousness have obtained unto it. See, the lost people love this. Man, to think that I could be accepted with God even though I've blown it, even though I've done everything wrong, even though I'm this terrible sinner, God is just offering me salvation, righteousness as a gift, Boy, the lost people love that. They jump on it like a chicken on a June bug because that's a good thing, amen. But you know what? The righteous people, the self-righteous people, the religious people stumble at this. And this is what it says in the very last verse of Romans chapter 9, that Jesus is a stumbling stone to religious people because what it means is that you're telling the person who's denied themselves and lived holy and hasn't gone out with everybody else and gotten drunk and done these things, you're telling that person that they aren't any more loved by God, that it doesn't take any less grace for them to be saved than the person who's living in sin, that everybody needs the same measure of grace. Well, yep, that's exactly what I'm telling them, amen. And I'm saying, and you know, that offends religious people. 
And so, therefore, it's always the religious people that have persecuted the true people who preach the gospel and preach righteousness by faith. It's always been religious people. It was religious people that crucified Jesus. It was religious people that persecuted the early church. Throughout history, persecution always comes through the religious people. Because what it is, they've devised these systems of what you've got to do. And the hierarchy of religion uses all of these rules and regulations to manipulate and control people and keep them under their thumb and keep their money flowing into their coffers. But when you start telling people that, hey, it's not what you do, you don't have to come to church. You don't have to pay your tithes to make God love you. Instead, you ought to come to church because God does love you and because you've already accepted it. You ought to give not to get God to love you, but because you understand how much God loves you. Just give as you purpose in your heart. That kind of teaching always flies in the face of people who are trying to manipulate and control others. And so therefore they persecute the people who preach that because they lose control. That means that these people have to be responsive to God. It has to be a love response rather than a fear response that drives them. And boy, they hate that. They don't like it. But you know, the good news about this is that if you understood things properly from God's point of view, nobody could ever earn right standing with God. It's actually the mercy of God that set this system up this way. Because in man's opinion, we think some people are righteous and holy. But from God's viewpoint, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if God would have demanded some level of performance, even if he would have decreased his standards and made it so that, you know, a lot of people could squeak in, it would have also exempted certain people. There's certain people that I mean from the word go They lived in sin. They were rebellious towards God. And God would have exempted those people if he would have put even a very minimum requirement that you had to do just the smallest things. But because God loved everyone, he wanted a method of salvation that would be available to every person regardless of what they've done. So he just said, all right, if you want to trust in yourself, here's what you've got to do. And he gave the law, not so that people could fulfill it, but rather to make them despair of self-salvation, self-righteousness. And then he turned around and just offered the gift of righteousness, a faith righteousness that comes from God. It's actually his righteousness, and it's exceedingly greater in quality and quantity than what you could ever produce on your own. And if you don't understand that, and if you're just working to try and have God love you, then you'll be frustrated. As it says in Galatians 2.21, you will frustrate the grace of God and Christ will become of no effect unto you. Now, I'm most people, when you start talking about righteousness and salvation, they apply it only to being born again. And they think, well, I'm already born again. This doesn't apply to me. But even after you're born again, most people have slipped back into the thing of trying to relate to God based on self-righteousness. And so their their eternal salvation may be secure, but on a day-to-day basis, they have made Christ of none effect. And they have voided, they've made the death of Christ in vain by going back to a self-righteousness. Now, as I go through this series, on the, especially the last tape, I'm going to be talking about that there is a place for self-righteousness. Your actions are important, especially in relating to other people. You need to maintain an attitude of holiness 
but it doesn't accomplish anything with God because God's standard of holiness is beyond our reach. We're incapable of fulfilling it, and so God just made it a faith righteousness. But there is a place for living holy, and we'll be putting this into uh, perspective. But when it comes to relating to God, you need to recognize that every last one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let me just kind of summarize this and conclude this first teach, uh, first tape by using an example out of Daniel chapter 5 of the handwriting on the wall is what we commonly refer to this as. And it says in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, that Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the gold, golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and of brass and of iron, of wood and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed. <laughs> I can imagine that prior to this time, here he was, man, having a feast, thinking he was the greatest thing on the face of the earth, that the world was lucky to have him. He was in pride. He was in arrogance. He was drunk. He was reveling, doing all of these things. But when he saw this hand coming right on the wall, his countenance changed. That just basically is old English way of saying this guy was scared spitless. Amen. He was afraid. He knew that this was the intervention of God. And his thoughts troubled him so that his joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. That's an old English way of saying he was so scared that literally his knees started having fellowship one with another, started shaking. And the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers. And basically none of the astrologers could interpret the dream, even after he offered them gold and silver and half the kingdom and everything else. But in verse 10, it says, Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, Thy father made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, forasmuch as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams, and showing of hard sentences, and dissolving of doubts was found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So they brought Daniel in. The king says, I've heard about you. He offered him money. And uh, all of these things in verse 17, Daniel answered and told the king says, let that gifts be to thyself. In other words, keep your money. I don't want your money. I don't care what you can offer me, but I will answer and I will give you the interpretation of this writing before he interpreted it. He rebuked this king and told him, he says, you knew all of these things that happened to your father. Your father got lifted up with pride and man, God humbled him and this man. Matter of fact, Belshazzar or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar, 
the father of Belshazzar wrote Daniel chapter 4, the only chapter in the Bible written by a pagan king. And in Daniel chapter 4, it's a tremendous passage of scripture where Nebuchadnezzar, he actually became like an animal and for seven years ate grass like an ox and his fingernails grew like claws and he lived out under the trees. He was a crazy man. And yet God restored him back his kingdom, gave him back his throne, returned his reason unto him. And in the very last verse of the fourth chapter, Nebuchadnezzar said, now I know or I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways, judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Man, what a radical statement. And Daniel told Belteshazzar, you knew that these things happened to your father, and yet you've ignored it. You've exalted yourself. You've been basically blaspheming against God, uh, you know, using the vessels out of his own house to mock God. And because of your ways, God sent forth this hand to give you a message. And here was the writing in Daniel chapter 5, verse 25. It says it was meany, meany, tikal, eupharsin is the closest I can come to pronounce it. And this is the interpretation of the thing. Meany means God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Now, these are actually, I think I've read this. I may be wrong on this, but I think it was Aramaic was the language that was used, and the word meaning means numbered. And Daniel interpreted it that it meant that his kingdom had been numbered and finished. And then the word tikel means thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. And the word tikel means balance. And then the word perez means thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And the word perez is the Aramaic word for Persian. And so this is the writing of it, and he said that your kingdom's going to be taken from you and given to the Medes and the Persian, and history shows that it happened within the hour. While they were still in this feast, that uh, Darius came into the city, came in through the water course, and conquered the city of Babylon, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, and it was supposed to be impregnable. Nobody could conquer it. They conquered it while they were at this drunken orgy. And he took the throne, and these words of Daniel came to pass that very night. Now, here's the point I'm wanting you to see, that Belshazzar was probably the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He was living in the palaces of Babylon, which had these hanging gardens of Babylon, a seven wonder, one of the seven wonders of the world. He was living in more opulence, more glory, more majesty than any person on the face of the earth He had all of these things. He had wives, concubines. He had a thousand of his lords at this thing. He was throwing this feast. And, you know, according to man's standards, if you were there, when we read this in the Bible and we know what the interpretation of it is, you know, we tend to look at that and say, how could this be? But if you could somehow or another put yourself in a situation where this was happening today, you go over to some country of the world And if they ruled the world and they had a palace that, I mean, it was gold, it was silver, diamonds, uh, marble, everything. It was just beautiful. If they had all of these things and if you could put yourself in that and be at the most luxurious feast that ever took place on the face of the earth, see all of these great accomplishments and stuff. Did you know most people would revere a person like that and think, man, this is some person we would put them on another level. That's what they do, and that's what other people do, and we praise them in all of these things. But you know what? From God's standpoint, he says, I've weighed you in the balances. 
And if you could just right now picture one of these old set of balances where you have the two chains hanging down and and here's, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, what do you call a thing that hangs from a chain on a balance, this uh, place where you put the weights or whatever. Anyway, if you could look at that and put all of your righteousness, your goodness, your glory in one, compared to other men, you might outweigh them. But you know what? Compared to God, you put one little tiny ounce of God's righteousness, his purity, his holiness on that one scale, and I'll guarantee you it'll tip the balances every time. And in a sense, that's what he was telling Belshazzar. He says, all of your glory, the mightiest man on the face of the earth, all of your your splendor, all of your wealth, everything you've got, you've been weighed, and compared to me, you're nothing. And man, Belshazzar experienced the wrath and the judgment of God. Did you know that if, I don't care who you are, and you may have so many degrees that, man, you don't have room on your wall to put them. But you know what? You can have 32 degrees and still be frozen. That doesn't mean that you're anything in the sight of God. You may have all of these accomplishments. You may be like the Apostle Paul that was circumcised the eighth day, Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the righteousness which is the law. You're blameless. You may have everything going for you in the natural. But the moment God puts his righteousness on the other side of that scale, your righteousness is infinitely inferior and you come up short. And every person needs to come to a place where you recognize that you cannot approach God on the basis of your own righteousness. There is a self-righteousness and then there's a faith righteousness that comes through just believing and receiving the righteousness of God, which is offered to us as a gift. Whose righteousness do you claim? Are you really trusting in yourself and in your own goodness? You can tell by your reactions to things. Have you ever said things like, God, I've fasted, I've prayed, I've studied the word, I've paid my tithes, I do all of these things. What does it take to get my prayers answered? If you've ever responded like that, then the problem is you didn't talk about what Jesus did for you You talked about what you have done for Jesus. Your faith is in yourself. You are looking to your own righteousness. And either you aren't born again because you're trusting in your own righteousness, or even if you have been born again, you can fall back in to the deception of believing that God is going to move in your life based on some merit of your own instead of putting faith in a Savior. Either way, you can make the death of Christ be in vain. You can make Christ of none effect in your life or what these scriptures says. And you need to change that. You need to get back to a righteousness, to a right standing with God that is not based on the things you do, but rather is based on what has been done for you by the Lord Jesus. The only part you have to do with it is you either believe and receive or you doubt and do without. If you continue to put faith in yourself, then you will make the death of Christ of no effect for you. It'll be of effect for other people, but it'll have no effect for you if you are still trusting in your own righteousness. You are fallen from grace. Christ has become of none effect. And praise God, we need to get back to a place where our faith is squarely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I presume that the majority of people who listen to this tape are born-again people, but if there's anybody listening who you would admit that you've been mis- misunderstanding this whole thing and you have gone to church. Maybe you've been a good person. Maybe you hadn't, but you've been under this deception of thinking that you had to be good for God to accept you. 
If you've lived a terrible life, then maybe you've known that God was true and existed, but you just felt like I could never measure up, and so you've gone the other direction. This is good news for you. It's telling you that regardless of what you've done, you can just receive salvation as a gift. And if you are a religious person and a moral person that's been going to church and doing good, you may be under the deception of thinking that you're good enough. You've compared yourself with other people. But the truth is, all of sin comes short of the glory of God. You need to humble yourself. And I mean side by side with the person who's the terrible sinner. You need to humble yourself and just receive salvation as a gift. And you can do that. It's just a choice on your part. All you've got to do is call out to the Lord. And if you would pray that prayer that the publican prayed and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you'd pray that prayer that we used in Romans chapter 10, where the, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you will do that, then you can be born again today. And if you're already born again, you can come back into a place to where Christ is the one who is making your life effective and not you. I tell you, it all goes back to where is your faith. If you were to stand before God today, and if the Lord was to say, what makes you worthy to enter into heaven? Would you point to your church attendance? Would you point to some good thing that you've done? Would you point to the fact that I've paid my tithes and I've tried to be a moral person and I've kept the law? If you would do that, if that would be your reaction, then you're no different than a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, or any of the religions of the world. They basically preach that there is a God, and the way you get to him is by your goodness. And if you'll conform to whatever their standards are, then if you do good enough, God will accept you. But see, that's religion. That's not true Christianity. True Christianity isn't what you do. It's what you believe. Have you made Jesus your Savior? Are you trusting in him? The proper response, if you stood before God and if he said, what makes you worthy to enter here? The proper response would be, it's not anything I've done, but I've, I've made Jesus my Lord. I've confessed him as being my Lord. And because of Jesus, I'm worthy. He's my only righteousness. He's my only claim that I have to enter into your presence. A person who put faith in Jesus like that would be accepted by God. A person who didn't put faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter how good they lived, if they live better than I have, if you go to church, if you do everything you can, if you aren't 100% dependent upon Jesus for your salvation, then you'll split hell wide open. You might be the best person that ever went to hell. You need a Savior.